We're in chapter 18 in our study of the Gospel of John, and uh, the next two chapters are going to be familiar because uh, it is the account of the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, his crucifixion, I mean, the things that we associate with Good Friday and Easter. And I want to remind you of a couple of things as we begin. Each, we have four Gospels, and each one of the Gospels gives us an account, some very short, some a little longer, of Passion Week, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And each one of them approaches it from a little bit of a different angle. They don't contradict each other, but they'll emphasize certain things that maybe one of the other writers will not emphasize. And John is one of those. John gives us some additional information about the arrest, for example, of Jesus. And uh, he almost completely skips the trials of Jesus. He'll summarize them, but whereas Luke gives us a great deal of detail about the trials, including the trial before Herod Antipas, which the other gospel writers don't mention. So I'm again telling you more than maybe you want to know, but just because you might see some different things does not imply contradiction. It implies like any account of any event. When people give an account of an event, they, they give an account based on something that they're interested in or their perspective or what immediately happened after or before the event itself. That's the same with these, these accounts. All right, let's begin then with chapter 18. Good question. Yes, I don't, please. I don't have notes for 17. Are you sure we didn't? I thought we finished. 16. That was the high priestly prayer. We did that we last did 17 week. Last week. We did it last week. Okay, yeah, that, I apologize. Well, you were concentrating Busy. probably a lot of other things <laughs> with the technology. Okay. Thank you. But yeah, Sorry. we covered that last. That's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. All right, let's look at verse 1 then of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, that would mean chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. Everything we've been studying for the last, what, five, six, seven weeks or however long we've been in this, this, this long section. He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there's a garden. And so uh, that the geography of this, and you can look on the map that's on page 11 of your notes, which gives it's a very, very good map, actually. It charts the movement of Jesus, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday's in the grave, and then Sunday when he's when he, uh, resurrected. So he's moving from what would be the south side of the temple going down the Kidron Valley, which is that deep valley between Temple Mount and Mount of Olives, a very deep valley called the Kidron Valley. And as he's going up the Kidron Valley, right there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can see that on that map on page 11 as well. He goes to a garden. We know from the other gospel accounts, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, which again is on the east side of Temple Mount, right at the base of the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for or because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, that's a new piece of information. It should be surprising, but John stresses that this was a place where Jesus often met with his disciples. That's We don't learn that from a number of the other Gospels. Again, I'm just stressing each Gospel gives a little bit of additional information. And the reason that's important in terms of, of what John is doing here is Judas knew where to go. He's going to take the, the band of soldiers, as he is about to betray you, he knew exactly where to go. Now, continuing, verse 3, so Judas, having procured 
a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. Now, let me stop here. These are, these are two armed group of men. And when I say armed, I mean, you know, with swords and spears and shields. That, that's what I mean by that. I don't mean guns and movies. I just make sure you understand what is armed. But the first group, it says, Judas procured a band of soldiers. These would be Roman soldiers from the cohort that normally was in Caesarea, but during the holidays came to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't tell us how many, but these are Roman soldiers. And then secondly, some officers from the chief priest and Pharisees. These are Levites. These are the temple police. These are the, uh, well, I don't know how else to say it, temple police that the Sanhedrin used to deal with uh, uh, disorders on Temple Mount or problems on Temple Mount. And that was so that Rome, so that Rome wouldn't get involved in anything. But this is, in a sense, this is quite extraordinary, really. You, you see Judas, and, and obviously the Sanhedrin is conspiring with him. But Judas has organized a fairly significant number of soldiers to get Jesus. And I mean, I, I've, I've reflected on that. And I've thought about that. This is, this is at night. It's very early morning. It's pitch black. There are lights. And, and Judas and the Sanhedrin have two significant armed groups of soldiers. Jesus is going to fight. Jesus is going to resist. You know what I mean? What are they thinking? Perhaps, too, what they are thinking is that the disciples and followers of Jesus are going to defend him. So what I'm trying to get across to you, because we, we don't have pictures of this. We have to kind of picture it in our mind. This is a very significant group of soldiers. Roman soldiers and the temple police. They would be Levites. Coming to arrest Jesus. So they would have torches. They would have all of their swords and spears. And so it's just a very formidable group. Yeah, my note says a detachment, regiments, a group of 300 to 600 soldiers. That's right. I mean, it's hard to believe it's that many, right. but it could be. I mean, because John is telling us, you have two, and this again is unique, John giving us all this information, uh, two bands of soldiers that, and you're correct, this could be in the hundreds. I mean, you, you, just, you try to think about that. You're going to arrest one man who has no sword, has never done it. It's kind of just, but they're, they're considering what could have been, and that would be legitimate, significant pushback from the crowds and the disciples. Some of them are armed, as you'll see in a minute, because Peter's going to use a, a dagger to do something. Okay? So just um, spending time on that so you grasp the immensity of this situation. And it tells us uh, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, then Jesus, this is quite wonderful too, the causal part of something, because he knew all that would happen to him. So here you see, again, how John is depicting it. Here's Jesus in control of the situation. Even though you have these perhaps hundreds of soldiers, because he knew all that would happen to him, he came forward and said, whom do you see? And so John is telling us, and John's the witnesses, John saw this. So he sees Jesus, makes his theological statement, and then he, he makes this, this, this 
he comes forward with confidence. He's in control. Who are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. Now, most of your translations are going to have I am he. And there's nothing wrong with that translation, but it's ego ami. I've talked about that many times in our study of John. It's literally I am. And so remember, that is a, that is a powerful title of God from Exodus 3.14. And so Jesus is responding, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't, don't skip that. That's a very significant statement. Now, it doesn't tell us when it says they drew back and fell to the ground. Is all of the they? Is it potentially the hundreds? Well, I don't know. John isn't being specific here, but this is this group, and I'm going to assume most of them, if not all of them, fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Because they knew who they were dealing with. God just spoke. The I am just spoke. And so you, you would think the next verse would be, and they all confess that he's God in the flesh. It doesn't say that. So he asked again, whom do you seek? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And that would mean the disciple. He's not referring to anybody else, the disciple. This was to fulfill a word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. That refers to John 6, 39 and to John 17, 12, which we just studied last week, the high priestly prayer. So it's, it's really quite wonderful to see what's happening here. Jesus is connecting, excuse me, John is connecting what Jesus had said and what John saw, he said, that fulfills what I heard Jesus say. Again, you have this, and this is the correct one picture to have. You have this picture in your mind as you try to, to, to consider what this would look like. Here's Jesus. He is very much in control of the situation. Now, he is willing to go to the cross and die, but this isn't, none of this is catching him off guard. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, the word in Greek is makarion, it's more like a dagger. I mean, don't think of the big, long Roman sword of battle. That's a different Greek word. It's makarion, which is a dagger. Still, you know, or over here this long. And of those, uh, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. The other gospel accounts don't tell us his name, John does. But John skips this part, which is in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 22, I believe verse 50. It, Luke tells us that Jesus healed that man's ear. So, I mean, if we are to understand that, that, uh, that Peter struck his and cut off his ear, it would presumably fall on the ground. Jesus would have picked it up and healed it. Now, you have two things that have happened in a matter of moments, proving indicating, pointing to a significant truth. This man, Jesus, is God. One, what he said, I am. Two, he just healed. And everyone would have seen this, or at least most of them. 
if there's a couple hundred, maybe the ones in the back wouldn't, but almost everybody there would have seen this. That's not something you see every day. These are soldiers, particularly the Roman soldiers. They've been in battle and they just saw a guy's ear cut off. Jesus reached down, picked it, and heals it up, which is just astonishing. But it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change behavior. But it does indicate, once again, Jesus is doing these messianic miracles, proving who he is. The Lord says to Peter, I'm in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, okay, follow, put your sword away, put that dagger away. But then he says, shall I not drink the cup? Father has given to me. The term cup is a metaphor. That's very clear. But it is used throughout the Old Testament. I could give you a dozen passages. It's used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for death and judgment. The cup of God's wrath, the book of Amos talks about. The cup of the wrath of God, Isaiah talks about in chapter 51. Jeremiah talks about it, chapter 25, 28. So when Jesus says, shall I not suffer the wrath of my father? And so in effect, Jesus is saying, knock it off, Peter. Don't try to stop what the father and I are doing to redeem the world. If Peter acting impulsively, understandably so, if Peter acting impulsively, then Jesus stopping it, healing the man's ear, and reminding Peter of what he's been telling them, going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And so the cup, again, I'll say it for the third time, is a metaphor for the wrath of God. He is willing, Jesus is willing to do that. So again, I just want to stress, as I've said now several times, the picture here is of Jesus in control of this. I mean, all of these different people, perhaps hundreds of them, all acting and doing things, Jesus is in control of this. And so, immediately, John, in his account, skips a whole bunch of stuff, and he has Jesus in a trial. So we read in verse 12, so then the soldiers and the captain, the officers of the Jews, remember those two different groups, arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, let me digress for a quick moment here. And I don't have a board, so I can't write these names down. But Annas, A-N-N-A-S, was an older uh, member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Sadducee. He, had, he was an older man. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. But he had been deposed by Romans, the high priest, in AD 15. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was made the high priest. Caiaphas is the longest reigning high priest in the first century. But Jesus appears to Annas first, which indicates something. Although Caiaphas is the high priest, his father-in-law is the real power. So Annas, older, had been deposed, still power behind the high priest's office of his son-in-law Caiaphas. And so you will see throughout the gospel account, 
you have this altar. High priest Annas, high priest Caiaphas. And technically, Caiaphas is high priest, but like, you know, former president, president, former president Carter, still called President Carter. Uh, Obama still called President Obama. Clinton still called President Clinton. You maintain that title. That's what's going on here. But the real power is Annas. So they take him to Annas first. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man should he die for the people. That's If you remember, that takes you back to chapter 11, verse 50. Caiaphas had said that. Caius didn't, he's not talking about a substitutionary atonement or anything like that. He's just saying, um, Caiaphas was that guy who said, you know, <laughs> we're going to kill him. And it's really good that he dies for the people. That's how he meant that. That's all John does. That John doesn't give us details of the, of the trial. Luke does. Matthew does. What John is interested in is what is going on in the garden of Caiaphas's house. If you and I could get on a plane and go to Israel, I'd show you know exactly where that is. And so you have this focus now of the garden outside where Jesus is being uh, in question by Annas and Caiaphas. Could you expand a little bit more on one man should die for the people, which which people? On people, what? Uh... Well, John, uh, excuse me, uh, Caiaphas, when he said that back in chapter 11, I think it was verse 15, uh, he was saying that cynically, we're going to kill him. And it's going to really be good that he dies for all these people. In other words, to save us from Rome's wrath. That's kind of what's in back of that. As John commented when he wrote this in chapter 11, Caiaphas didn't realize what he was really saying is theologically true. He is going to die for his people. But for the practical purpose, they were worried about Rome. That's right. Because Rome thought this guy was a threat to their leadership. So if one guy dies, we don't have to worry about Rome. That's exactly right. Just practically. That's exactly right. So one one guy, Jesus dies, and and Israel gets back in its place uh, for Rome. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a Caiaphas, when he said that way back in chapter 11, Caiaphas is looking at this a very expedient way. You know, we got to kill this guy. And it's really going to be good he dies. For the people. It's going to save us from the wrath of Rome. Because if we, more and more people keep following him and all that's happening, Rome doesn't like that. We've talked about this before. Rome doesn't like this. Right. Rome, you know. It crushes it. <clears throat> and so the, the spiritual leadership is we don't want that to happen. And we're not going to, we're not going to tolerate this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yet the double meaning is. That theologically, that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. So, now again, as I was saying, John is really interested. He gives us some additional detail as well, but he tells us a little bit about about Simon, Simon Peter. And in 16 through 18, you have part one. In 25 through 27, you have part two. In between is a brief summary of, of the trial. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, that's more than likely John, the writer of this book. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he, meaning John, entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. I'm going to stop here because, again, John tells us something here 
that we didn't know, but it makes sense he would tell us. Remember, John's, uh, John's brother is James. They're the sons of Zebedee. And Zebedee was a very wealthy fisherman and trader on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what, what is inferred here is because of Zebedee's wealth and position, he was friends with the high priest, maybe even more broadly, the high priest family, pretty large family. And so John is just telling us, I knew the high priest because of my dad. We know, we know what Zebedee was like. We know his influence and significance. And this is John, the son of Zebedee. So this other disciple, John, because of his influence, he immediately got in to the inner part of the house. And he is influential in getting Peter brought into that inner court as well. So that explains how Peter, which we don't know that from another gospel account, but that explains how Peter gets into that inner court. Because he's from Galilee. He doesn't know anybody. But John's family does. That's why John has. So we just learned something. So this is the context for the first denial. And we learned something from this too. The servant girl who challenges Peter is the girl who's keeping watch over the door, who to let in and who not to let in. And the servant at the girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of those disciples, are you? He said, he is Peter, I am not. Now the servants, the officers, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So you, <laughs> you have this kind of remarkable situation where Peter, hardly in boldness, hardly in courage, but is cold, and he's with all these other people. And he just denied Jesus. No, I don't know him. So then John bypasses Peter and goes to the, quote, trial, close quote. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And so, I mean, the Lord is being very, very open. I haven't done anything in secret. I haven't said anything in secret. There's no conspiracy here. There's no sedition against Rome here. I have been very open in everything I've done. And that's true. This statement, I have said nothing in secret, also echoes what is in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, which perhaps is what Jesus is alluding to. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Again, what's his point? Everything I've said and done has been in public. And there are going to be countless witnesses <laughs> that you can call and talk to. They'll tell you what I said. I didn't say anything secret. I'm not hiding anything. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus, by, by struck by Jesus in his hand saying, is that your answer to the high priest? Is that how you answer him? Is that how you talk to him? Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness to you after all. 
But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So you have Jesus now cued. Why does this, presumably it's one of the officers of the temple police, because he's using that word officers, which he used up in the previous verse. So one of these Levites, who's an officer of the temple police, strikes Jesus across the face. You don't talk to the high priest like that. And Jesus again is saying, what did I say that was wrong? What did I say that's, that's a lie or inaccurate? And if what I said is true, what are you striking me for? So you have this accusation, which is a ludicrous accusation. And Jesus just, in effect, defending himself. So now Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So remember, Jesus has a trial for Annas, and now he's going to have a trial for Caiaphas, probably in front of the whole Sanhedrin, because the high priest is head of the Sanhedrin. Now he goes back to Peter, verse 25. Now Peter, Simon Peter, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Now, please note, John is using a plural pronoun, they. Who are the they that he's referring to? I think go back to verse 18. The servants and the officer. They are standing warming themselves. And Peter's in the middle of them warming themselves. So I think what we're saying, or excuse me, what John wants us to see here is a servant girl who's watching over the entrance, the little door that goes into the garden. Now you have all the people in the center of this. What it really is, is the garden. It's lovely. It's a lovely place of bushes and flowers. It's quite a lovely place. So right in the middle of that, and all these people with Peter said, you are one of them, aren't you? You are one of his disciples. So before this group, he denies it. Then one of the servants, verse 26, of the high priest. So this is a bond servant of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. There's a new piece of information. That the third accusation against Peter is a relative of Malchus. He's the man whose ear Peter cut off. He said... Did I not see you in the garden? This is one of the servants. This would have been part of that group that arrested Jesus. And he says, didn't I not see you? Peter again denied it at once the rooster crow, just what Jesus had said. On Luke's account, when you go and, and read Luke's account of Peter's denial, Luke adds a detail that John doesn't talk about. As Peter denied Jesus' third time, the Lord Jesus was walking up the steps to be taken from Annas to Caiaphas' house. And Jesus looks him in the eye. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Peter? Jesus had said, you're going to deny me three times before, before dawn for the, the rooster crow. Peter just did it. In Jesus' eyes, at Peter's eyes. So if there was any moment in, in Peter's life where the immense guilt and sorrow and shame of what he had done 
this would have been that long. Matter of fact, he went out, Peter went out and wept bitterly for what he had done. Now we're going to read about this at the end of this book. It'll be several weeks till we get there. But I want to I want to make sure you see how the Lord closes this circle. Shame and guilt of Peter. He denied his Savior. You go to the end of the book of John, Gospel of John. The resurrection has occurred. There have been several post-resurrection experiences. Peter and some of the guys are up fishing in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here's Jesus making breakfast for them. Peter's in the boat. He looks really sad. He recognizes that Jesus jumps out of the boat and runs. And they have breakfast and you know, all the, the other guys, their disciples are fishing with Peter, his brother and others. John's there. And it's really fascinating. I love that passage because then Jesus said, Peter, let's go for a walk. Start walking down the shore. Do you remember what Jesus says? Do Peter, me? do you love me? How many times does he ask me? Three times. Peter, do you love? Peter, do you love? Dealing with guilt and shame that Peter felt for denying. Peter's restored. That's it. We'll, we'll get to that later on because a lot has to happen between this point. But it, it, to me, it's it's an example in terms of Christ. It's an example of the tender compassion of Christ. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew he was going to deny him. But he also had the provision to restore Peter which is what Jesus is in the business of doing. And so then he just says to Peter, okay, Peter, okay. And when he says, you want me to get shepherd my flock, pastor my flock, take care of my flock. That's what he's going to do for the rest of his life. So you have this um, really significant, this is what John is doing, this really significant focus on Peter. You do have, and, and, I mean, it's, it's really more the shortness of the summary about the trials. Because in the very next verse, verse 28, he's in Pilate's, he's in Pilate's court. So John is not stressing the trials like the other gospels do. The the um, rooster rooster crows and that's Friday morning. Right? That's correct. That's correct. This is Friday morning. That's correct. <clears throat> okay, now again, John he told us in in uh, in, in the previous uh, passage, verse 24. And Annas shifts Jesus to Caiaphas to appear before, really, which would more like to be for the whole Sanhedrin. Doesn't tell us anything more about that. Because now in verse 28, is the trial before Pilate. So what happened there, guys, was in that second trial of Jesus, uh, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, uh, Luke tells us this, Matthew tells us this, they will charge Jesus with sedition. They will charge him with sedition against Rome, and so they'll take him to Pilate, which is what we're about to read. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. Rome had made Judea a province in AD 6. Harrison was a disaster, so they got rid of him and, and made it a Roman province. That meant Caesarea is now where the military officers are and where the governor is. And the governor is Pontius Pilate, but he's in Jerusalem. Because it's feast day, lots of activity, lots of potential trouble. So he's here. So they take him to Pilate. It would have been the Antonia Fortress, which is on the northwest corner of Temple Mount. Uh, the ruins of that, when I would go to which I show people that, we know exactly where this occurs. So they led him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So that phrase, early morning, it means it's right after sunrise. 
So we're in the very early mornings of Good Friday. They themselves did not enter the governor's territory uh, headquarters, so that they did not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, again, John is telling us a little tidbit of information that the others don't tell us. But I wish I could take you there, but on that northwest corner, he's, this was a, this Antonius fortress was massive. It's quite significant, had a lot of soldiers because they could view out the south windows and see Temple Mount. They were there to provide order. But the steps going up to the Antonia Fortress, it tells us the Sanhedrin, they partial art, they stop. And they expect Pilate to come out of the fortress and bring Jesus up into the fortress for the trial. Why didn't they continue walking up the steps and take Jesus into the Antonia Fortress? Because it's Passover. It's about to be Passover. And for them to go into a Gentile establishment like that would make them unclean would defile them. It would go against the kosher laws of Jewish, of the Jude of Judaism and Leviticus. So they're not going to do that. Now the expectation is, I should say their expectation is, that Pilate's going to come out and bring Jesus into the court. That's exactly what happened. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them, which again, I mean, this is, it's kind of a remarkable thing for Pilate to do. I mean, he got a very easy because he did not like the Jews at all. He was very anti-Semitic. A lot of extra government on that. But <laughs> he defers to him. I mean, you can, you can imagine Pilate saying, still up in the past, you want to bring him to me? You bring him to me. I'm not coming out there. But he does. He defers to them. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? If you're bringing him to me, you must be accusing him of breaking some law, and it, it has to be a Roman law. Because Pilate wanted, and, and that, was, that was true since it had become a Roman province. They didn't deal, Rome didn't deal with Jewish issues. It didn't deal with Jewish, Jewish law. It didn't deal with, deal with interpretation of Jewish law. That's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin by Rome's authority had the right to do that. So when he says what accusation, what Roman law did he violate? Why is he a threat to the Roman law? What accusation are you bringing him? Because if you don't have anything, it's over. You go home. They answer, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself. Judge him by your law. Again, Rome didn't want anything to do with Jewish interpretation, Jewish, Jewish oversight of their laws. That's your business. Rome had given you that authority. So take him. The Jews then said, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That is true. AD 6, when Rome made Judea a Roman province, it took capital, it took the power of capital punishment away from the Sanhedrin. Few very specific um, exceptions. So they're saying something. This is in effect what they're saying. This guy deserves to die. He's committed a capital offense, but we can't kill him. Only you can kill him. Okay, Pilate is saying. Pilate's going to want to know what in the world did he do? It was a capital offense. 
but but John adds in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. In John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, it's stated. So now we have an exchange between Pilate and Jesus, which is quite wonderful. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so now we're inside the Antonia Fortress. Presumably, there were a number of these. or in one of these courts, like an open court, where Pilate would talk to some of the soldiers or perhaps some of the political officials that were visiting from the empire. So he looks to Jesus. Are you king of the Jews? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Pilate had been Roman governor of Judea for a number of years. He's over, most of the time he was governor, he's over in Caesarea. He only come down to Jerusalem during the feast days. So in that area, he would have had a lot of feedback. There's this guy traveling around Galilee. There's this guy that goes into Samaria. This guy that's in Judea. And he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be their king. Okay, I don't hear him doing anything. I don't see it as a threat. All right, we'll keep our eye on him. And so Jesus never said to Pilate, I'm king of the Jews. But Pilate had heard this. Because if he is a king, he's a threat to Rome. So Pilate wants to discern, is there evidence to kill this guy? If I execute him, I have to have evidence. If I execute him, I'm accountable to Caesar or Tiberius. I, I have to have a reason why I'm going to do this. So are you king of the Jews? Jesus responded. Do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say this to you about me? Where are you getting your information? I mean, it's, really, it's quite marvelous that Jesus asked this question. It took a little bit of courage. He's the son of God, so he doesn't like that. Mm -hmm. But he's really saying, you know, uh, where did you hear this? Did you just come up with this on your own, on your own accord? Or were other people telling you this? The pilot responded, verse 35, am I a Jew? And I'm telling you right now, we know this. He hated the Jews. So when he said that, he probably said, am I a Jew? I mean, you can just imagine the inflection and tone of his voice, dripping with cynicism, dripping with, with mockery. My Jew, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? The pilot doesn't really answer the question. And he's, he's trying, what do you do? Why do they want to kill you? Why do they want me to kill you? What, what have you done? And so the Lord responds, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate would process this. Whatever he means by that, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not a threat to Rome. Jesus to buttresses said, if my kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. So in a very, very perceptive and real sense, 
Jesus is trying to neutralize the primary concern of Pilate. Are you a threat to the Roman Empire? Because if you are king of the Jews, that's a threat. Jesus, my king of this world. Of course, his message had been back if you go to Matthew 4, the theme of Jesus' message was repent for the kingdom is at hand. So I'm pretty sure at some point Pilate had got word of this guy running around talking about his kingdom, is here and all this. But it's no threat. Nobody's taking arms. There's no revolution. There's no killing of Roman soldiers. And so Jesus is buttressing to this, buttressing this. When you think kingdom, don't think the Roman Empire. My kingdom is beyond this world. And Pilate said, verse 37, so you are a king? Isn't this kind of neat, this dialogue? Pilate trying to figure out, is this guy guilty of a capital offense? And Jesus isn't letting him do that. So are you a king? Jesus respond, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I was in the world, to bear witness to that truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? We do not know the tone of voice here. We do not know Pilate's body language. We do not know the inflection of his voice. But that's a penetrating question he asked. Well, I want to go back because the power of this question is what Jesus said in the previous verse. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to be bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So when Pilate says, what is truth? It's probably not a philosophical question. You know, like philosophers ask, is there such a thing as objective, discernible truth that we can really? That's, you know, that's the kind of question philosophers ask. <laughs> I don't think that's what Pilate means by that. Because Jesus said, Everyone is of the truth. Listen to my voice. What is truth? Because Pilate is now confronted with Jesus. He's confronted with this guy that's upset the Sanhedrin. This guy has said, I'm here to bear witness to the truth. And those who respond to me are people who believe this truth, and they listen to my voice. They believe what I'm saying is true. Pilate, are you one of them? In a very real sense, that's what Jesus is doing. I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Truth about God, the truth about the king, the truth about who I am. And those who believe what I'm saying, listen to me. Pilate, are you one of them? Well, what is true? And so Pilate is 
clearly shaken. He is shaken by this. He doesn't know what to do. Because, I mean, obviously, just you and I reading this in, in this, this paragraph, there's nothing here that's a threat to Rome. There's nothing that Jesus is saying that, that in any way is a threat to the Roman Empire. And so Pilate, after this rather curious conversation with Jesus, concludes, end of verse 29, after he said this, he went outside to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. There's nothing he's done. There's nothing he said is the threat to the Roman Empire. He's not guilty. He may be guilty of something you guys, but he's not guilty of anything that's threat to Rome. But you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas is a robber. The word, that's, uh, that's not a very good translation. The word there's lestes. He's an insurrectionist. Barabbas was a rebel. He was a rebel against Rome. He was an insurrectionist. That's what Lace takes me. He's an insurrectionist. So you have here Pilate saying, look, you guys have a tradition, and we've honored that for years. And at the Passover, I release one of the prisoners. There's a Jew that sometime during the previous year we arrested. Look, I, you probably won't be released this guy, the king of Jews, quote unquote, right? No. We want Barabbas, which is absolutely absolutely stunning. Here's Jesus, king of the Jews, who is not a threat to the Roman Empire in Pilate's admission. And here's Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, who was a threat to the Roman Empire. And whom did they want him to release? Barabbas. And so again, you have this truly almost unbelievable situation of Pilate interrogating the Lord Jesus and how the Lord so much in control of the situation responds and heightens the confusion in Pilate's mind. I don't know what to do with this guy. So what we will see here is what Pilate does in his chapter 19. So we've covered the whole chapter already. We still have a few more minutes. Any questions on chapter 18? Probably none of this is really new because this is a rather familiar part of the story that we read, study in Good Friday, Easter weekend, all that stuff. Any questions? Yeah. Um, in 32, said so this was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken. Show about what kind of death he was going to die. Uh, what, was he, what, what was he referring to? Um, well, it would be ultimately the substitutionary death that he would die on a cross. And John, I think it was in John chapter 12, so it's a, a, a few chapters earlier. John is drawing that into, uh, into the, the fulfillment of, of, of what he's stating in verse 32. Jesus said, I'm going to go before the elders and chief priests, and they're going to kill me. Okay. And so they say, well, we can't put someone to death. You can do that. You took that power away from us in AD 6. I'm, I'm embellishing it, but that's a fact. And so 
when Jesus had said, chief priests and the elders are going to kill me, John says, that's what he meant. They're taking this to Rome. Let Rome do it. So we so can't do it. It was Jesus' prediction. It wasn't scriptural. Well, it is. It's not a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's something Christ had said. That's correct. Yeah, that's a good point. It's something Jesus had said uh, earlier. In verse in verse thirty seven, the the word purpose is that the messianic prophecy he's referring to. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't have my Greek Testament with me. I'm pretty sure purpose is telos. And, and that would that would mean the purposeful end, the purposeful goal of, of why I come into the world, which definitely would be prophetic uh, material from the Old Testament. Dr. Eckman. Yes, sir. On uh, number 40, uh, they replied, uh, no, give us Barabbas. Um, it seems to me in one of the other gospels that Pilate offered them the alternative, said, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? Is, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. As a matter of fact, and again, John, uh, as I explained at the beginning, uh, each gospel writer emphasized certain things, but you're correct. And I think it might be Matthew. But Matthew's uh, account tells us that Pilate actually brings out at the, at the top of the steps, the Antonio Fortress, Jesus on one side and Barabbas on the other side. Which one do you want me to release? In John's uh, gospel, okay, he doesn't get into all that detail, but it's the same situation. So you're correct. Pilate is giving them an option. Your tradition is on Passover, Rome releases one of your prisoners that you were, was been arrested last year. Which one do you want me to release? And you're correct, Woody. They cry out, release Barabbas, which I tried to explain because of the term that's used there. The irony of that is absolutely incredible. Barabbas is a real threat to Rome. He's an insurrectionist. And Jesus, in terms of just how Rome looks at, Pilate looks at, he's in a threat to Rome in terms of, of what, what uh, Pilate's looking for. But again, I mean, you see in all of this, um, that railroad track, you see the divine sovereignty, God is sovereignly accomplishing this redemptive purpose. But you also see all these individuals, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, all these other, they're acting individually on their own will and power. But all this is being superintended by Almighty God to accomplish the redemptive purpose. That's that wonderful tension of theology that we feel. All right. No other questions? A few more minutes. Let's crack into chapter 19. We will not get this done. But now you, you have this... <laughs> It's kind of confusing, but you have this almost ridiculous trial before Pilate. So what does Pilate do? Pilate then, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. Now, this, this would have been different. This would be the, the, the beating before Jesus is sentenced. He will have another flogging right before the crucifixion. That flogging right before the crucifixion is much more severe, much more horrific, actually. And I'm not minimizing this flogging because it is awful too. But this is the flogging right before the actual accusation and sentencing of Jesus. Once he's sentenced to have another flogging. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown. Other gospels tell us these are date palm spikes. A date palm is a palm tree, but it's date palm. It's very, actually very good. I love dates that come from the But anyway, they would have been about this long. And they're very, very hard. Um, it, 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 like you think of a rose bush thorn, which is not very large, but you just multiply that to where it's about like that. And it's very hard. So they, I mean, I would assume they kind of tied them together with rope or some kind of twine and they made a fake crown. But listen, what they would have done is they would have pressed that down into Jesus' scalp. And those date palm, because they're very hard and very sharp, it would have caused him to bleed. So I mean, just try to picture the gruesome nature of this. They put this palm, date palm uh, crown, quote unquote, and pressed it onto his scalp, which would have caused it to bleed. Now, it's not severe bleeding, but it would have caused him to bleed. A thorn, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Then came to him, came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, what the Roman soldiers were taught to say was, Hail, Caesar. So now they're mocking Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. This is mockery. This is scorning of the incarnate God. And they pressed this fake crown onto his scalp. And where they got the purple robe, I don't know. We don't know that. But they adorned him in this purple robe. A fake king. And they mocked him. Struck him with their hand. I went out again and said, see, I'm bringing it up to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, this just shows you the atrocious ruthlessness of Rome. Even somebody that would be found innocent, they would still flog them. They still beat them. And so that's what Pilate is doing. And Pilate is hoping is that by flogging Jesus and then by allowing the soldiers to do what they did in this horrible mockery of Jesus. And he brings them out, presumably out there, standing on the top of the steps of the Antonian fortress. Here he is. I don't find any guilt in, in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown, I mean, verse 6, verse 5, came out with the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said, behold the man, ecce homo. In Latin, ecce homo, that's very famous. I'm sure you've heard of it. But behold the man. And so it's, it's, why does Pilate say that? He doesn't say, behold your king. He said, behold the man. It's pitiful, bleeding, mockery. What threat to Rome is he? No threat. What possible, conceivable threat does this man have for Rome? Bleeding from this crown, mocked, now been flogged. Behold, man. Not behold your king. Behold the king and behold man. He's just a man. What possible threat is he? 
When the chief priests, the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Sarcasm, you take him. No, they can't take him. They can't crucify him. They don't have that authority. Pilate sarcastically, I find no guilt in him. There is nothing I can do. I can't execute this man. I'm accountable to Caesar Tiberius. I can't do this. And the Jews answer. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why? What time is it? Ooh. Tell you what I'm going to do, because it's 12 up. If you want to know what that means, come back next week. <laughs> All right? It's a great place for me to stop, because I didn't want to explain this, and it's 12 up, and I've got to get out of here. So, uh, again, I'm trying to emphasize and dwell upon the unique things that John is telling us in this account of the rest of Jesus and his, quote, trials, unquote, and so on. So I hope that's been helpful. So we really are nearing the end. It'll be a number of weeks yet till we're finished with John. But um, I have been thinking about, uh, because we've been in the New Testament for a while now, I've been thinking about looking at two, not real obscure, but two minor prophets, Jonah which is well-known, but really studying Jonah and then studying Habakkuk, two of my favorite minor prophets. So if, if it's all right with you, we'll do a little short study of those after we're done here with, with the Gospel of John. All right, I'm going to pray. And uh, well, i got to get out of here. Lord, we're grateful for our study in the Word of God, especially John's unique account of the arrest of Jesus and his trial before Annas, and then the brief before Caiaphas, and now extensively before Pilate. Lord, we see, Lord Jesus, see that you are very much in control of this situation. <laughs> All of this was happening for your purposes that the Father had given you to die a substitutionary death at Calvary's cross. And you have, we see this curious mixture of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. All of these individuals are acting responsibly accountable for what they do, but this is your perfect plan of redemption being worked out in space-time history to make it possible for us to have a personal intimate relationship with you because of what Jesus did for us. So we thank you for that. We have the privilege of studying this. Be with these men, both here in the room and then those from streaming it or listening to it later on, perhaps. We pray your watch, care, and blessing over them. Again, we think of Fred and think of Lyle, we just trust them to you. Thanks for the time together. Strengthen these men to be men of faith and courage, men of God who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. Yep. Thank you, guys.